Dear Asian Americans would like to remind you to make time for your health so you don't have to lose time for the things you love. An updated COVID vaccine restores protection that has decreased over time, including protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and the worst effects of COVID. If your last COVID vaccine or booster was before September 2022, it's time for an updated vaccine. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am Jerry Wan, your host. Happy Women's History Month. And today, happy International Women's Day. We celebrate all of you, our ancestors, our grandmothers, mothers, wives, sisters, daughters, everybody, for all the wonderful things that you do to make the world go around. And in particular, for me, a big shout out to my wife, my mother, my daughter, and all the other badass women in my life who allow me to do what I do and for us to exist here at Dear Asian Americans. Today, we're bringing you a very special episode for International Women's Day, talking to Patricia Ratulangi, who is a VP of Global Communications at Nielsen, who will share not only her personal story, but some of the work that they've been doing at Nielsen in terms of tracking women on TV, on screens, as well as the intersection of being Asian and woman. And so get really excited to hear some of the the data, and her insights on what that means. Thanks again to the Health and Human Services for supporting this episode and to our friends at Nielsen and for IW Group for facilitating this interview. Without further ado, here now is my interview with Pat. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. Uh, we are back for the first time in a while doing our traditional interviews, talking to wonderful Asian Americans doing a variety of different things. And before we go too far, Happy Women's History Month to all of our mothers, wives, sisters, daughters, and, and all the wonderful women who make our life possible. And it is actually on that note that we are so excited to kick off our first interview in March with our dear friend Patricia Latulangi, who is from Nielsen. And um, we're going to be talking about her journey from Indonesia to Singapore and to the States, and, and now where she is leading the EI efforts, sharing uh, the work of tracking who we see and who we hear from. And when we say representation matters, what that actually means. And so we'll learn all about that. And so we are excited to share our first conversation with you. Patricia, welcome to Dears and Americans. Thank you so much, Jerry. So excited to be here with you and um, happy Women's History Month. Uh, you have to remember all our um, elder, elders too, like our grandmothers, grand aunts and so forth. If they're listening to me, they'll be like, hey, you didn't call me out, you know? <laughs> Listen, if your grandmother or grand aunt listened to this show, uh, let me know. Um, I don't know if that's a demographic that we serve, but I'd be more than happy to, uh, I, I don't know, that that's that would be awesome if, if any aunties They're actually li listen to this show. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, March is a very special month for me for a lot of different ways. We're recording this on March 1st. It's, it's important to me because on March 2nd, we celebrated the anniversary of our show. And I launched the show on March 2nd in 2020 because it was my daughter's first birthday. And so the, the whole show, and the reason I started it is really to be able to share stories that maybe you wish you had growing up, I wish I had growing up, uh, that shares on a very contextually resonant level what it means to be us in this world. And my first person that I wanted to do this for was my daughter. She will be four by the time folks are listening to this. Um, her birthday is technically tomorrow. And my son is six. And I wondered when I had the opportunity three plus years ago 
what do I want to leave for them? What do I want to leave for that generation? And it's our stories. And I think stories told intergenerationally have become very hard to pass down. Um, obviously, for those of us who have immigrated here and may have grandparents or parents who uh, perhaps don't speak the language that we do as fluently and vice versa, or don't live with us, I, I think there's a, a gap in sort of the passing down of our stories. And so, you know, we created this show to be able to make space for those stories. And then I am so honored to have you join us today. So let's roll back the clock a little bit. Patricia is a proud Chicagoan resident today, uh, but obviously that wasn't always the case. Share with us as, as much or as little as you would like about sort of how the Ratulangi family became Chinese American through the various places that you have called home over the years. Yeah, Jerry, happy to do that. And I can't, um, I can't more than a hundred percent or a thousand percent plus what you said about the lack of our ability to translate, to transmit those stories across the generations for sure. But a little bit more about what, how I got here, right? So I was actually born in Indonesia and my family moved to Singapore when I was about eight years old. Um, and it was primarily because at that time in the um, in the early 80s, there was a lot of anti-Asian, anti-Chinese riots. There were a lot of anti-Chinese riots going on in Indonesia. And my parents, with three little girls, I'm the oldest of three, thought, hey, if anything were to happen that we needed to make a, a quick getaway, it would be hard to do so with three little girls. So off I went um, to Singapore in the middle of what would have been second grade. And if you think about that, being in a completely foreign country where I did not speak the language, I did not speak English at that point. Um, I was only, you know, 100% Indonesian speaking. So I came first and my grandmother was the one who came with me for that first half a year. That's why I wanted to make sure that you called them out too, Jerry, because she was such an important part of getting me settled and getting me comfortable in, in, in Singapore during that time. Um, and that experience was very interesting. And in thinking back about it, right, one of the things that happened in Singapore, um, you have to take a second language in order to go through school. And in the third grade, you're streamed into different um, streams of education, basically. There's a there's an express stream and a, I think a second secondary stream was name I can't remember now. And if you failed your second language, you'd be automatically put into that second stream, which means that you extended the primary education from the regular six years to, I, I believe it was like seven or eight. So I'm thinking, all right, great. And at the advice of the you know school principals and so forth, my parents decided, hey, let's just stick with um, Malay, which was the language, the second language option for Singapore at the time and not um, put the additional pressure of learning Chinese at that point. So there I was learning English for the first time. And um, I remember distinctly being teased, actually, for having this accent <laughs> that wasn't quite what everybody knew, what everybody was familiar with. Anyway, um, long story short, that was a good thing in the sense that it helped me become, you know, very fluent in, in, in a language that is extremely international, right? And I'm able to join conversations like this with you because the the ability to speak without as too much of an accent, I think is weirdly overvalued, right? Um, there is an automatic almost like, okay, you're not one of us the moment somebody hears the way you speak. I'm sorry, I'm not like mixing up my personal sentiments about what's going on with my personal history. So when I came 
when when I was in Singapore, you know, um, I went through the usual education system there, um, and it was definitely one of my um, favorite times of life. And I still think of Singapore as, as my home. Um, when I'm landing at Changi Airport, I, it brings tears to my eyes. And then I made the next move out of Singapore when I was in college. Because again, that was another thing where it was a bit of a cultural expectation thing too. Like, okay, to do well, you need to experience something different than what we've provided to you, says my parents, right? Um, and I'm forever grateful for the fact that they were able to send me abroad and to experience that. Um, but I also did have a kind of a, a little bit of a come to Jesus moment with my dad. I wanted to be a journalist, speaking of storytelling. And he said, you're not going to do journalism. You don't make money in journalism, um, especially looking at the Asian examples of um, journalism at that point in time in the early 90s. There wasn't a lot of choice, right? It was basically the print newspaper. That was it. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I said, all right, fine, we'll, we'll take the next, um, the next best thing, which is communications. And I threw in international studies as well. So it sounded something that I convinced him by saying, Hey, I could, I could be an academic <laughs> anyway. And I think to this day, he still doesn't quite understand what it is that I do. <laughs> um, at any rate, then I basically pursued a regular path of, um, you know, public relations, um, and corporate communications. Um, and it was only three years ago that I had the opportunity to pursue DEI communication specifically. Um, I've been at Nielsen for about 11 years now, and it was always in internal communications um, with a little bit of M&A, merger and acquisition communications. Um, and I had always done a lot of work with the women's employee resource groups, but not, I didn't really think too much about the Asian experience there. I mean, it was just sort of, okay, if there is an Asian um, woman story, that's how I would talk about it rather than focusing on the Asian community itself. But when this, when this opportunity came up to not only um, be our lead for DNI communications, but also be the spokesperson and the kind of data that Nielsen is, is able to provide now didn't exist prior to three years ago, right? To be able to really look at representation on screen and provide a data-driven value to why being inclusive of Asians is good, not just for communities, not just good for your brand, but also good for business. So that's really injected a, a newfound enthusiasm, a newfound energy um, in what I do today. You know, I, I think it's wonderful because often the narrative that I think we hear, you know, at least in sort of, if you're a millennial, um, we were limited in what we could see on TV. I think kids growing up can choose, you know, um, I was at an award show a few months ago here in Los Angeles with a, a very prominent Asian creator. And he said, Hey, if you don't see yourself on TV, change the damn channel. And I think that's a privileged thing that we can be able to say now, particularly with, you know, places like YouTube and other places where we can get whatever content we want. But we, we, we often think about sort of representation mattering still on the big screen, still on TV shows where we still look to as a, I guess, an indication of where we are in American media. For, for you, having grown up in Asia, and as I did as well, we weren't, you know, short on representation. I think coming here at eight, it was a little bit different, but I don't, in Korea, everybody was Korean. And I imagine, exactly. you know, at least, you know, we we're Asian. And so... Where was the moment that you understood the importance of that and sort of seeing American media or at least doing the work that you do, uh, how has that impacted the way that you see things? Because I, I think it's fascinating 
because we both grew up not having the representation problem per se from a broad Asian perspective. Sure, ethnicity-wise, maybe a little bit different given where we grew up, but it wasn't like we watched TV with all white people growing up back home in Asia. Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Jerry. And I think the moment for me was um, actually career-related, right? Um, When I was thinking about the the decision to move into DNI communications or not, that was the moment. And I was thinking, all right, I'm pretty comfortable where I am. I know what I'm doing. I know the people that I need to work with to be a success at doing what I was doing with internal communications. Um, And... But it was just a feeling of, I need something more. And when I looked at our communications um, team, right, there just weren't a lot of, um, I would say, non-white. And I would say the second biggest minority group within the comms team was Black people, right? And there were a few Hispanics. And I mean, I could probably, it was probably like two or three of us at that point. (laughs) <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, this is this is interesting. And if we're supposed to be the voices for the company, for this data that we have, uh, we're supposed to help coach people who are out there speaking to the communities. If there isn't an Asian voice or representation there to be able to guide that authenticity, then I'm not doing the company's uh, justice, right? Nor am I doing right by the people that I come from, right? Who I am. So... I know that seems kind of hokey, but then of course, um, what followed that was George Floyd. And that was like, to me, okay, I was meant to do this. If, if, and not so just from from an Asian perspective, but the fact that, hey, we need to be allies because all of us are going through similar discrimination. And then of course, the anti-Asian hate um, came up again um, a lot more than it had been for a while, even though it was always under the surface, right? And it just brought even more um, importance to the work that I was doing. Um, and then, you know, because of the commitments that the media and entertainment industry were making, and also uh, media corporations were investing in Black um, business and Black uh, storytelling, it became a point of, again, valuation, right? Can Nielsen do something to help push the the work that these companies are doing, like, all right, you all, you all are talking about it, but what have you done? You know, and how can you show the value? And that was something that many of our clients did come to us asking. Thank you for sharing that context. Cause again, we're, we're also going through a, a, a shift. I think there's again, mainstream media is what we'll just broadly call it, you know, is, is one bucket, but you know, I look at my kids are six and four. Um, they're still watching the things we, uh, tell them to watch, right? Um, cartoons, PBS, you know, Disney, all that stuff. But I am more mindful as a parent. Obviously, I run this show. I care about identity. I care about representation. And and to think about how much and, and of what I want to be exposed to and, and being very aware of some of the, uh, being mindful of the potential pitfalls of even letting them watch shows that are very, very popular. So, you know, for for my daughter, a lot of the things that little girls like to watch are princess-based. And a lot of the princess-based characters in our world and pop culture don't look like me and you. And so I have to worry about what if she decides to assign that as pretty? And I don't see myself, right? And so I, I think we live in a much better time than I did, in a way, of representation and, and thinking about how we see ourselves 
um, even dolls. We have friends that are making Asian, not Barbie, but Barbie type dolls so that little Asian girls can play with dolls that look like them. And yet I think when we, when we point to, uh, and, and you know, we're in the thick of award season, right? And so we're, we're seeing a lot of celebrations by Asian folks, particularly our, our friends over at everything everywhere all at once, just crushing it and just bringing us a lot of so much joy, but that's one show. And that took years for us to have that moment. And, and, you know, you and the uh, wonderful folks over at Nielsen are, are doing the work to tell that story of how we see ourselves. And so it, it being, you know, we're on an Asian American show. It is March. Let, let's talk about that intersectionality. And, and from your perspective, Pat, because I am a privileged East Asian dude. I am of one identity, really. I, I don't have an intersectional identity that, you know, is, is double marginalized. And, and yet when we sometimes, uh, I guess we don't want to, well, tell me about the data as much as you want to, but sort of at that intersection, do you feel that it is a, a double whammy of sorts from a visibility perspective? How do you see the different, um, and I know gender is not binary and, and we don't subscribe that to this on this show, but, you know, from a data perspective, that's the way that we track it. How How is that sort of balance from the differences of representation that, Asian men see on screen versus Asian women. So funny that you would bring that up, Jerry, because one of um, our reports from 2022, we took a look at the, we wanted to take a look at what does America see about Asians. So we went to the top 10 most watched programs in America on broadcast. So this is basically top 10 shows by anybody, right? And when we looked at that data, something interesting cropped up that it was shows were mostly focused on, you know, crime, episodic crime dramas. Um, there's a lot of Chicago in there. Chicago PD, Chicago Med, Chicago Fire are three of the top 10, believe it or not. And weirdly, there was almost no representation of Asian men except in, I believe it was FBI and Chicago Met, right? Ethan Choi, <laughs> basically. Um, and there were more, there was more representation of Asian women. So, you know, having, and, and the fact that you said you're a privileged Asian dude was, is interesting to me because I think, yes, we recognize that we are Asians, but the rest of um, people who are not Asian, right, are seeing it almost a different other people are seeing a stereotypical view of Asian people, right? The fact that these shows are mostly in the cop and crime and uh, medical world automatically puts us almost in this model minority stage, right? Do they're doctors, they're FBI analysts, you know, the, the nerds, <laughs> if you will. There's a little bit more of that shift going on with Yellowstone, for example, you know, where there's an Asian woman who is taking that role instead of an Asian man, typically. But that's what people outside of our um, identity group are seeing about us. So, you know, there was, there, there was something that sort of cropped up to pop to the top for us. And we're like, all right, you know, I think not only does the work have to be done for Asian women, it's also got to be done for our industry as a whole, for, for our people as a whole. Um, so the fact that there is a big win with everything everywhere all at once, you know, is something to be lauded. And it's a celebration, not just for Asian women, but for all Asians. Right. And then the other thing that I just read too was um, Michelle Yeoh was really, really um, bowled over by the fact that the most recent award that she got was by Screen Actors Guild. Right. And this is people who are, you know, off 
who are actresses, content creators, not somebody else, you know, beyond the, beyond that level of people who are trying to get the stories told. And it was also brought up that she's the first Asian woman who's won that Best Actor Award since Memoirs of a Geisha. <laughs> How many years ago was that? And the, in the storyline itself, I mean, okay, if I remember correctly, the storyline itself was about how this geisha overcame, you know, the, mm. the challenges that she was dealt. Um, but you, when, when you, if, unless you've seen it, you auto- automatically think of, oh, Asian woman, geisha. Yeah, that's kind of fairly typical in those days. So being able to break through that from a representation standpoint is, is um, I think, a, a win for us, but that the progress needs to be made much quicker. Now, back to your point about what your daughter is watching, right? I have a 24-year-old myself, and um, that, was an, that was a concern for me too. Like, what is she watching? Um, and for some reason, she would never gravitate to the dolls. She, would always, she was always playing with trains, cars. She liked, like, machines. And now she's into gaming, <laughs> You know, and guess who she hangs out with? Mostly boys, was what she said. She said, typically, um, and I asked her about this, I said, who do you hang out with for the most part, right, in all these games that you're playing? Um, and she goes, well, yeah, you know, maybe about 10% are girls. I'm going, oh, okay. And I asked her, how are you treated, right? How do you feel? Oh, she, t- she spoke about basically misogyny. I mean, these boys are sometimes would just shut down and leave the game when she was winning, <laughs> and I'm going, okay, you, you all can't handle this. I mean, she, yeah, she's a girl, but she is playing at or better level than you are. You should be seeing that as a challenge and improving yourself, you know? Um, anyway, that's me being a, a parent and trying to be protective still of my 24 year old. <laughs> the other thing though, that, uh, coming back to TV and the screen, right. Um, as Asian households in the U S Oftentimes, there's a lot of intercultural, multi-generational living in the same household. So in terms of being able to help um, sort of temper or buffer some of what is being watched on screen, we took a look then at what some of these multi-generational households are watching, right? Mm -hmm. So last year, what was big? Turning Red. And that, I think, was one of the breakout shows that, you know, went beyond the, the blonde-haired Barbie dolls, right? This was a story that, yeah, you know, that, that showed this tween who was um, really, you know, trying to be all kinds and trying to discover herself, trying to fix her relationship with her mother and trying to, you know, get ahead of all of that. Now, we found that Asian viewers who were age 75 plus, okay, and um, grandmas and grand aunts <laughs> who are watching this, you know, you were watching this at home with kids at three times, nearly three times the rate of viewers um, in this age group, Hmm. three times. So the Asian, you know, um, 75 plus folks were watching this with their grandchildren at home. Um, And then the other thing that was interesting was that um, for Disney plus, right, since you did mention a lot of Disney um, that most people are watching when it comes to watching with kids, right? Um, Asian Americans who are 65 to 74, are subscribing to Disney Plus at almost eight times more than other audiences for Disney Plus. So if you're living in a multi-generational household, you're watching more of Disney Plus than other audiences on average. Is that like grandparents buying, wanting to have it at home for the grand? Like, what is that? How, how do you assign the, the the reason for that? So it's it's... Because they're living in multi-generational households and, you know, through our Nielsen panel, we're able to see who is in the household. That's a Nielsen family. 
So then we know that when they're tuning in mm-hmm. to Disney Plus, that's a household that is viewing it together, right? Um, we've got, and not to get too technical, but um, when you're a Nielsen family, you've got something called people meters that are individually assigned to the members of the household. And so we can tell that it's not just the TV running in the background, but hey, um, grand, grandma or granddad or great aunt is watching that together with their um, the younger folks in the family. All right. We should have done this at the top of the show, but for folks who are not familiar, what does Nielsen actually do? I know what you do, but what does yeah. Nielsen actually do? Because I, you know, as, as we move, particularly for younger listeners, they may not own a TV or they may not subscribe to cable. And so what does Nielsen do and, and why is the work important? Yeah. Thank, thanks for the opportunity to explain that. I should have started with that too, Jerry. <laughs> Patrick, you can uh, adjust it and maybe put this on to our friend. <laughs> I don't know if you can do that, but we'll... Uh... <laughs> We'll make it work. So, yeah. So Nielsen is a media and, and marketing measurement company at its at its heart, at its core. And um, what we do today um, is measure audiences who is watching content, um, not just on your TV screens that are hooked up to your cable and your electrical outlets at home, but also all the multiple devices that we have um, that we carry around with us. Um, so that includes mobile, iPads, you know, YouTube, and so forth. Um, and also we are measuring um, representation in content, right? So besides who's watching, we also measure what's on screen. And um, we're able to look at um, a series of identity groups, 60 plus actually, of um, through our Greystone Inclusion Analytics product and marry them up with the top shows that they are watching across broadcast cable and streaming to see what are the themes that are associated with those programs when the different identity groups, groups are present. Um, we've got something called video descriptors that talks about mood, right? Are these all happy or are they all kind of sad and dark? Because the way the stories and what stories are told puts a picture in your mind about who is being cast as those characters on screen. So the idea there is, again, one, to provide, you know, a a data-driven point of value for this type of content and this type of um, um, inclusion in the programs that you are uh, placing ads in or, you know, buying to publish on your media platform, right? But also, too, that you're helping to provide, we are helping to provide this information to the advocacy groups um, to be able to provide, hey, this information that tells people, hey, this is where we are going. This is where not only just the Asians are are watching and what Asians are being cast in, but also, as I shared with you earlier, there are some programs where there is a win in terms of um, getting audiences beyond just Asian people. When did Nielsen broadly sort of start tracking Asians as a demographic worth uh, studying? And and I asked that because I recently saw um, some chart, a, a demographic chart, and it's again white, black, Hispanic, other, and in, in many of the studies that continue to be shared using data to tell stories. Uh, we're, we're left out. We get literally othered, even though we're fast growing. We command, you know, a, a lot of metrics that make us um, attractive customers. Uh, we're, we're complex to study. Obviously, we all know that. Um, but when was that moment that Nielsen started to do so? And if you can share as much as you can, you, you've been there a while. Sort of, how did that come about? Was that from advocacy internally, externally? Um, how did we start to be tracked? 
In terms of measuring um, the Asian household, I believe that started preceded way my time in mm. Nielsen itself. So the actual work of DNI advocacy, right, and community outreach, that probably started about 15 years ago, I want to say. And it was, from a business standpoint, it was important because we were trying to get at that accurate measurement of Asian households, Black households, and Hispanic households, which are the three big ones. And it's something that we're trying to break through too, because, hey, we have to be able to measure other people because there's more than just Black, Hispanics, and Asians in America today. So it, we, we go back a long way. This has been in our consciousness for a while. Um, the I think the next step for us too is the ability to break down that monolith of Asians because there's way more than just Asian big love of people, right? I mean, um, th that's why I was extremely excited when the Grace Inclusion Analytics product, because that is able to break out, um, you know, into East Asians, South Asians, and Southeast Asians. Um, and we're, you know, we're trying to drive a little more intersectionality there. We're looking at gender as well, um, but that's to come. We're working on that. Um, coding and tagging takes a while. <laughs> I, you know, you, you bring up a very good point. It's something we talk about on the show and, and in my yeah. you know daily life often, which is sort of, you know, we're, we're super complex. We're not a monolith and, and not to say that other racial groups are either, but we're so different. And and so for somebody to say, hey, um, there's a Japanese person winning. Why aren't you guys proud? Aren't you guys all Asian? You know, I was actually once asked, how did the Asian community feel when like Tiger Woods became Tiger Woods? And I had to take a pause because I was like, I don't know if we rallied around him because he was great or because his mother's Thai, right? Like it's, it's interesting. And so we still, um, I, I think we made a lot of strides in the last couple of years, particularly in reaction to a lot of the ugliness in the world and having to come together to have a louder voice at the table. But even still, th this notion of, one Asian represents all Asians is, I think, unfortunately, something that we we have to adopt and accept at some points because we, we have such little representation if we were to break down by ethnicity, but also something to be mindful of as we share our stories in your work and in my work to make sure that we don't just, I don't know, even gaslight ourselves into saying, hey, you know, you got one Asian, that should that's good for all four billion of you, right? It, it, it's really not. And so... You know, when we talk about, you know, some of the things that you you, you um, study and share, like, you know, share of screen, you know, how how present are we in, in a given show? How often do people see us? And are we in, what types of roles are we in? The, the nuance that we don't catch, at least on, on some of these things is because it is broadly Asian, or even if we break it down to East Asia, East, South, Southeast, all these things, does that person watching that show feel represented? Does she or he see themselves in whoever's being portrayed and and again this is perhaps not a question obviously we're not a question we're not going to solve today here on the show but it asks more questions than i think answers sometimes and also is encouraging to share with us or at least remind us that the work is uh never done and that we need to continue to claw at it so in your work at nielsen you obviously study this and track this what is the representation of asian uh american woman and maybe even Asian Americans broadly look like today and across sort of the different verticals of, you know, maybe broadcast and streaming even. And, you know, can you give us some context of sort of the, the, the trends, if you can, in terms of, is it getting better? 
is it stagnant or, you know, is, is more work needing to be done in this space? Yeah, no, definitely. Yes. More work needs to be done. We have been making progress, but more work needs to be done. Let's put it that way. So Grace and Inclusion Analytics um, pegs the representation of the different identity groups to the representation of the that group within the population. So if you look at, um, you know, for example, the um, broadcast cable as well as uh streaming share of screen, right? You'll see that there is, um, for the Asian and Pacific Islander female group, which is the big bucket for all Asians, Asian females, it looks it looks pretty good. We're, um, except in, you know, still I think broadcast and cable still have some work to do, although that's been coming up a little bit with shows like The Cleaning Lady, which just came out last year, right? On, on cable Fox, and it's now available on streaming as well. Um, and then Disney Plus, for example, it was another one. And then um, you'll see that the for for that bucket, um, you'll, streaming is the one that helps drive that representation, and rightfully so. There's a lot more content that sits on streaming. There's a lot more choice. The long tail of content keeps going further and further. Um, but when you dig a little deeper, right, the representation is mostly boosted by East Asians, um, and you know South Asians and Southeast Asians. Yes, they are a smaller percentage of the population, but the representation is lower than what it is in the population. Now, that's interesting to me because um, a lot of the stories, and maybe this comes from being in multi, having grown up in you know multicultural Singapore, and I'm here visiting my family now too. It's um, I don't really take it for granted. I, I take it for granted, like okay, whether you're um, a South Asian Indian or Malay or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like you're, you're my friends and you're the people I hang out with. The first show that I really saw myself in was Never Have I Ever. Um, single mother bringing up her teenage daughter. You don't really see that in in an East Asian family, right? And even like while I'm here, there's a lot of stories that I hear from my friends. Like, yeah, my parents don't get along, but they just stick it out anyway because divorce is like big taboo. Yeah, you know things like that. And then the children are, are being left to deal with the fallout of that. Um, and you don't really see too much of that type of reality being reflected in American TV still. South Asian females, however, if you think about it, like Rupi Kaur, you know, um, Devi Vishmakumar, um, those actresses are the ones who are helping to boost that representation for their um, their identity group. And then um, there's also Eternally Confused and Eager for Love on Netflix with Dalai, right? So there is a lot more of that representation. Again, streaming has opened up the door of opportunities for all um, Asian females across the board. Something I often think about or talk about representation, um, even on this show, and Asians broadly, is this balance, perhaps, or comparison between exhaustive representation and sufficient representation. We can't get to exhaustive representation because it is nearly impossible for every single person to feel represented. So that that's not a, a realistic goal. Um, so let's let's call that you know a, sort of a measuring stick. How, how do you feel about when we can get to sufficient representation where, as you mentioned, there's a lot of work to be done, particularly in different types of broadcasts and differently, or, you know, particularly with different types of Asian American subgroups. But, you know, we can't have a show where all 40 some odd countries feel represented and all the different languages and cultures and religions feel like they're seen. But again, the worst thing is saying, hey, there's one of you and you should feel good now, right? But the other part is, how do you think we can get to a point where we are doing uh, not enough, but doing the work so that 
the average Asian person or enough Asian people, the majority of us feel seen and heard on TV. That's why it's important to take a data-driven approach to it, Jerry. And I'm here putting my Nielsen plug in here, right? Um, and the, the decision makers in these media publishers and in the people who are putting their money in terms of advertising in these programs, there's need, there needs to be more work done with them in order to show them there is value in this audience, there's value in this content. And if you don't put your money where your mouth is in terms of the last couple of years where you've been saying you're stepping up um, to be better advocates of diverse groups, you're missing out. I think the last few years have really shifted general consumers to thinking about how, hey, I want to see myself, but also if you're not part of the identity group, there's almost an expectation. Like if you are not doing something to drive um, representation, to advocate for equity, right, within a brand, you're not doing your role, um, you're not doing your job as a brand that's able to use the power and your reach of, of consumers. You know, like in terms of ESG governance, right, and corporate social responsibility, DEI and racial equity is one of the top areas that has risen that has risen up in the last few years. Vox Media just put out a study about this, and decisions are made by consumers, and that's one of the influences that that drive purchasing essentially. If you know that your brand is supportive of diverse communities, that helps put give you an edge. Even if you are <laughs> paying a little bit more, hey, I'm actually putting, I'm actually investing, I'm actually contributing to the cause. One final question before we wrap. We, we often talk about sort of the future of media, whether it is, again, you know, things on your OTT uh, over the top or YouTube or whatever the next chapter of that is. And in sort of this notion that it democratizes content, that people will go to see what they want to see. Again, traditional media is still very important, particularly from a telling what, the broad thing means because yes, it's important for Asian people to see ourselves, but it's also important for non-Asians to see ourselves. Or are we getting to a point where we are becoming more siloed in the content that we consume to see ourselves in? You know, when, when we talk to young people, again, they don't think there's a representation problem because they're watching a lot of Asian content on YouTube. But if, if we did the data or if, if Google shared the data with us, how much of that is us supporting each other and how much of it is other people? And, and that's why it's important to have Asian representation on the big screen and on the little screens of TV and, and movie and TV, respectively, so that it shares our stories with the broad public, not just in a very super targeted marketing way. H how do you see the future of that balancing out? So in 2022, our top most watched streaming show was Squid Game. Now, that is a show that is Korean, right? The, this uh, South, what South Asian uh, actor in that show, but it wouldn't have gotten where it did if only Asians were watching it. Correct. We're 6% of the population. There's no way. So I want to, f uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a positive uh, person at, at heart, <laughs> Jerry. So I want to say that, hey, this advocacy and what's been going on, you know, with um, George Floyd, with anti-Asian hate is starting to open up people's eyes a little more. And so 
let's not, um, you know, undervalue entertainment value too, right? But given the fact that this is something that people talk about, people are abuzz about, um, streaming, social media, all of those things are definitely driving interest in shows that are not necessarily white cast, you know, white focus and, um, it's opening those doors to other content creators and other types of content. K-pop, right? K that whole K-pop culture. I think that's definitely one of the reasons why um, Squid Game drove a lot of interest um, across the board. And what was the other show that just recently um, stayed at the top of the streaming list for several weeks when it first premiered? Oh, Extraordinary Attorney Woo, mm. <laughs> which is, you know, Korean also, but has that additional intersectionality of um, the lawyer who is dealing with a disability. But she is, you know, and how she struggles with getting her, getting her feet under her when she starts at a big law firm. I think that's a story that resonates with a lot of people, right? No matter what your background is, there are those types of struggles when it's something that's part of your identity is what is causing you to be overlooked or undervalued or unseen. Um, and as more and more of these stories are being told, as the doors are being opened through streaming, I think it's also opening up people's consciousness, but it's got to start at the top with the people who are opening those doors, i.e. the, the producers, the, the media publishers who are green lighting these types of projects. So given also that the Asian consumer has a spending power of $1.3 trillion, right? And is the fastest growing population in this country. You got to pay attention to us. I mean, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I, I think there's there's so much. Um, and I know we're at the close of our conversation and uh, I invite you back because there's like four things you just said that I think we can each talk about an hour about. Right. Because uh, one, one thing I'll note is obviously, you know, we, we showcase Asian Americans on this show and our experience is very unique. I, I take all the wins and I celebrate, especially being Korean, when things like Squid Games and Attorney Wu have their moment. But it's not, I, I wonder, and I am optimistic as you are, because we certainly have no choice about to be optimistic. I, I want there to be a more direct connective tissue and even correlation, and dare I say causation, between the success and celebration of shows made in Asia and the opportunities that our friends get here so that they're hired more for leading roles so that they get more opportunities, their their films get funded more, that there's more attention on the awards that they receive for the great work that they already do. Because I think sometimes it sort of falls into the unfortunate uh, perpetual foreigner syndrome that, of course, Squid Games is a very Korean show. And there's a lot of social issues in Korea that's uncovered. But it is still a Korean show. It is not a an experience of of ours, right? And so... I take all the wins. I think it's amazing. I think it's wonderful. It actually helps me keep my Korean language skills fresh because I don't get to use it in my day-to-day anymore when I get to actually listen and read the subtitles. And, you know, you know, I, I left Korea when I was eight, so my language skills aren't what it used to be, but it actually helps. You know, we have a tradition here on the show. When we wrap, we ask folks to share a letter or a moment of thought and inspiration to our audience. Uh, the show's name, Dear Asian Americans, is simply that. It is a letter to our community from us in the form of a letter through conversation to share what we want, whatever we think we need to share to uh, help ground us, to uh, inspire us, and to leave a better legacy for your 24-year-old and my four-year-old daughter. So, Pat, if you would, help us finish the show and complete the letter 
Dear Asian Americans. Stories that are being told today um, are passed down from generations before you. Stories that you hear from others are also people's real lived experiences. And I th think that if you listen more, there will be lessons learned. And as you listen more, there will be more, um, you, you learn more that there's more commonality than there are differences. And I hope by learning and listening and finding those commonalities, you'll see that we need to be standing together, that we need to learn and support with each other as we journey through this life. Love, Pat. You took the words out of my mouth. You know, I believe that stories can change lives. I think if we listen to each other's stories, our authentic stories, with kindness and with humanity, uh, that really we would see far less ugliness in the world. I think a lot of the divisiveness and misunderstanding is simply that. It, it is a lack of storytelling. It is a lack of understanding why we feel that way and what our experiences are. Our Asian American stories are so, so, so different. And yet when somebody hears your story of going from Indonesia to Singapore to now doing this great work of amplifying our stories, somebody who may not have your identity will resonate with that. And, and that's the beauty of stories that I think we often forget. It takes time to tell these stories. It's sometimes painful and long. Um, but at the end of it, we come out with a unique and one in eight billion understanding of somebody else's experience that somehow feels very familiar. And, and I think that's the Asian American story that we are so honored to tell on this story. I, I commend you and the rest of the team at Nielsen for doing our collective part in making sure that we tell the data and, and the metric side of, of this story so that the people who need to pay attention to help us further our stage, broaden the stage, increase the volume of the megaphone, however you want to look at it, can continue to do the work. Uh, Pat, I want to thank you. It is morning over in Singapore and you are visiting family. And I, I really appreciate you making this a priority to LJ and to Justin and the rest of our friends at IW Group who help facilitate and coordinate this. Thank you. This is a team effort. This is really, it takes all of us and, and all of our unique skill sets and our just everything to be able to um, advance the um, increase of our voice. And so thank you for doing your part. I look forward to more conversations and what more than anything, I look forward to seeing more of us on TV. Thanks, Pat. Thank you, Jerry. Big shout out to Pat for making time for this interview. Again, big thanks to our friends at IW Group, particularly to Justin and LJ behind the scenes for facilitating this interview and highlighting the wonderful work that our friends at Nielsen are doing. This episode featured a story or data about women on screen, and we look forward to having them back to talk about what it also means to have Asian folks on screens, whether it be the big screen, TVs, or tablets, all the wonderful things, because we believe that it is important to see not only ourselves, but other folks on screen to help us normalize the conversation and to ultimately help us to better understand our unique experiences. And so for all the wonderful things that Nielsen does, you can go to nielsen.com, N-I-E-L-S-E-N.com is where you can go to learn more about their work. For us here at Dear Asian Americans, you can go to DearAsianAmericans.com or on Instagram at DearAsianAmericans to learn about the podcast and catch up on the dozens, almost 200 old episodes 
This Friday, we're kicking off an amazing and a very wonderful project that we've been working on so hard behind the scenes for about three months. We are kicking off the Asian American Dreamer series with an interview and a conversation with my dear friend, Nora Ali. This project is supported by Toyota and their support of Asian American Dreamers everywhere. Check us out on Friday. The episodes will go both live on podcast and on our YouTube page for the first time concurrently and air every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through the month of March. Thanks again for tuning in to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. And for my producer, Patrick, we thank you for listening. We wish you health, safety, and happiness. And stay loud. Happy International Women's Day.